and welcome to a Milwaukee Admirals podcast with Charlie Larson. I'm Aaron Sims. Big thrill today to talk to this guy. Uh, he put together so many great teams. He ran the draft for the Nashville Predators forever. GM with the Minnesota Wild. He scored 30 goals in the NHL. He's done it all, Charlie. He's was uh, involved in what was not involved in, but on the team when the maybe the most significant trade in sports history happened. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He's Paul Fenton, and he joins us today. Paul, it's great to see you. You look well. Uh, thanks for the time. How's everything going? Everything's great, you guys. I miss you. Um, my time in Milwaukee was so much fun, and you guys made it made it the best. It was it's such great memories of being in there in the great city. I have when when Charlie said that he had contacted you and you agreed to do this. I, I was thinking a lot, and it's amazing how many things flood back and i remember one night and it's probably 12 years ago uh i went over to buck bradley's after a game and you i think it was your wife of all people who invited me into that back room at buck bradley's and there was a group of you there and i, I ended up sitting next to you and lane lambert was there and andy and it was a whole bunch of people and i was kind of the odd duck out and uh but but i sat next to you and I leaned, you said something to me and I leaned, I whispered to you that working with Claude and Lane, I was the luckiest broadcaster, luckiest guy in the world. And you put your hand on my knee and you whispered to me, I'm the luckiest guy in the world to work with those two guys. And I thought that was so cool. And that, like I said, that's 12 years ago and it's probably kind of a, a throwaway moment, but it, 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 it always stood out to me. I mean, you, you always had good coaches, which was awesome. I would I would concur to that the the coaches that um, that I was able to hire and you know that was my responsibility was putting these guys into that place and I was trying to write down here um, this morning I think every single guy that we were able to hire went on to the National Hockey League yeah. in some capacity and yes I can add Herbie uh, Kirk, yes everybody Kirk, 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 everybody, everybody. Yes. In, including Herbie which is you know, I mean, I, it, amazingly, I, I was thinking all the way down and I always had in my mind, if I ever got a, a GM job and I had the ability to hire uh, a head coach, um, I had two guys in mind and it was Dean and Lane. Yeah, and right. I still can't believe that Lane is not a head coach right now. He's, you know, I've helped him a couple of times to have interviews and I, I, I came away shaking my head saying that I can't believe that he hasn't been there because his expertise, his knowledge, his passion, um, I, like at the end of the day, I probably would have had a really tough time with either Dean or he, I, yeah. I always had in my mind that I would have co-coached them because I love the two of them as hockey people. You know, Lane, Lane too. Lane is a guy who, he grew a lot in a short period of time. When you look at it, I mean, he, he came to Milwaukee and granted he had a little coaching experience in the junior ranks and he was that one year in Bridgeport, but in a really short amount of time, he became very polished as a head coach. Professional. Um, yes. But he, see, Lane was always that, um, I guess, very, very, straight with how he handled things. I played with him in New Haven mm -hmm. and that's how we got to know each other and vice versa with Dean. You know, I played with Dean in, in Binghamton for, for three years. He was my centerman. 
uh, and then again in San Jose. So the two of them I had experience with knowing their personalities and like Lane, as you guys know, is straight by the book. Intense. Is, yeah. Oh yeah. And, and the, the funniest, I mean, the funniest to be able to tease him as you guys got to know later on, because then he could laugh at himself yeah. when he, when he would do the uh, go off the deep end type of thing. So he's, Man, he is so ready to be a head coach and to be successful. I, I feel for him. You, you know what? I, I always get a, got a kick out of uh, when Lane, who is uh, like we think the maybe the most intense person I've ever met, maybe exceeded only by his uh, his uh, his wife, Andy, uh, you know, rest her soul, who was also intense and they would fight. And it was like, oh, my. And they, and it was and it, it was like, oh my gosh, like what's going on here? This is, I'm scared, right? I, I, I need to get out of this situation. But they just would, they would just like go right at each other. No, no one's backing down. It was, uh, it was really something to see. It, it was priceless, especially uh, when you guys lost him to, to Nashville and, uh, and we were down there. My wife and, and she were so, so, so close. And, you know, especially down the, the last days when she was getting all of her treatment and stuff and Nona was with her and um, the way that she and Lane battled, she'd come home some nights and she could not stop laughing. She's like, it's like a comedy crew over there. Like <laughs> you, you never know what's going to happen. And, and Andy is, you know, telling him you're not doing this and I am doing this. And, uh, it, was, it was Laurel and Hardy for, for, for the longest time. I mean, I don't want to make this the Lane Lambert show necessarily, and this is, doesn't even have anything to do with hockey. Did he ever tell you that his house in Milwaukee was haunted? Like oh, this yeah. apartment he had, he was convinced that it was haunted. That like, And he wasn't scared of the ghost, but he's like, there would be cabinets that would open up. And I knew that I closed him the night before. He was he lived in Brookfield in these townhomes off of uh, North Avenue and Calhoun. And he was darn well convinced that that thing was that there was a ghost in his, his condo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was, you have to know him to love him. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> Let's go back. You've got a history with the admirals, not just as a general manager, your history with the admirals starts as a young pro oh, yeah. uh, playing for, for Peoria. So you're, you come out of uh, uh you're from Springfield, obviously. Uh, I'm a BU and, guy. And a BU guy, captain of the team your senior year, and then you turn pro, but you're not drafted. How'd you end up playing in Peoria and then facing, you know, the best Admirals team ever before that team you just, uh, the, the, the 2014? Yeah, I went to New Jersey's training camp for the rookies, and um, I remember Max McNabb was the GM in he wasn't there in the three scrimmages that I had. And I, I actually did very, very well. I couldn't believe it. three days they sent me home. So I, I had to go in search of a place. And Jack Ferrara was uh, my mentor um, growing up and going to BU. He was the guy that really pushed to get me there. Um, and I ended up asking him, you know, where should I go? So Rick Dudley, he had asked me to go to, Winston-Salem, I think it was, or Hampton Roads, one of those, like that name. Sure. And Peoria said, you know, you can come for a tryout. I had to go on a tryout to Peoria. And I, I went there, I landed, we got our equipment. I don't even think we practiced. And we came up 
and we played an exhibition game in Milwaukee at, at the current arena. And I remember we had 10 forwards and 4D and two goalies. So it was 14 skaters. And that first day, I, I do have a, uh, a lineup of that night. Now, the, the gentleman gave me this a few years ago down in Milwaukee, heard this story. And he gave me the lineup and he said it was at Wilson Park. I don't remember it being at Wilson Park. I thought it was it was downtown. At the Mecca, yeah. Yeah. And a fight started with Dale Yakachuk, and he grabbed this kid who was from Dartmouth and he strung him out right in front of their bench. And you know, Dale was six five and yeah, this huge, kid, you know, five ten, five eleven. And he's just beating the tar out of him and I'm standing on the bench and I'm looking at everybody because no one knows anyone it's an exhibition and you got all these <laughs> no <players>. practices <laughs> I'm like I, I'm going is somebody going to help him and the linesmen aren't helping him or whatever so if there's like four minutes left in the period they go off into their locker rooms and we we go down and I, I honest to god I can still see it um kids sitting next to me I come in and he's got all of his equipment off putting it in his bag <laughs> And I look at him and I go, what are you doing? And he goes, screw this. He goes, I got a Dartmouth education. I'm not taking this <laughs> bag on his shoulder. And he went out the door. Never Just saw him again. Never saw him again. So that was my first experience. Then we played Milwaukee 16 times, I believe. And <laughs> I had to deal with, you know, fleshy, um, uh, Yakachuk and of course box boxcar Davis yeah boxcar, right so boxcar played with uh, Bobby the hammer Fleming on my team so it kind of kept it tame at times but boxcar is you know your fans would remember was just such a jerk to play against and whatever and I played against him for 16 times my my favorite story is the 16th time it was uh second to the last game of the year and we weren't making the playoffs and they were so good. They were just amazing. So uh, boxcar checks off and he comes down on the face off with like five minutes and four seconds left in the game. And he sticks me and I stick him back and he sticks me again. And I tell him, knock it off Daryl. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. So he goes to stick me again and I dropped my gloves and suckered him. <laughs> And we end up rolling around the ice and Bobby Fleming is standing over him and he's trying to claw my eyes out and everything. And he's telling him, he doesn't call him boxcar. He calls him Daryl. And he says, uh, Daryl, Daryl, don't do it. Don't do it. Bobby, he sucker punched me. Daryl, Daryl, you'll deal with me. So we go to the penalty box and boxcar's sitting there. And he's yelling over to me. He says, I am going to kill you. I <laughs> I am going to kill you. I stand up and I said, this is the last time you will ever see me because I'm not <laughs> going to ever be back in this league again. And I never was. And he went ballistic and he never got his hands on me again. So that was my, my Milwaukee time. So did you, did, did the gate, when the, when the buzzer ends and you get out of the box, you just, you beeline it right across. I huh? just get the hell out of there. The referees, the referees and the linesmen are there and it's, it's like a, a, a electric fence. He can't get through. So I'm <laughs> laughing. I'm laughing at him. And, and uh, Bobby Fleming's going, okay, okay, Paul, enough. 
enough. I'm like, yeah, oh, right. <laughs> this is too good. I had 16 games of him just abusing me with his stick. Oh. But, but we, you had you had 60 goals that year for a guy who was who had to try out for the team. Yeah, I had to beg for basically a contract there, which uh, was pretty good. I guess it makes you hungrier. Yeah. Well, your first two years, you had 101 goals. So my question is, and, and granted, there were far fewer jobs back then, too, in the National Hockey League uh, with far fewer, 10 less, te- 10 fewer teams. Is it harder to make it to the NHL then or is it harder now for guys? I think it was then. Um, now it's you, you make opportunities for guys. You know, for me, I went to BU my freshman year they came off winning the national championship. I never played a game my freshman year. I played JV hockey at BU. Um, my sophomore year, I, I was a second leading scorer because I, I said, I'm not going to take this. My junior year, I wrecked my knee in the seventh game and I played my senior year. So in essence, I played two, two years of college hockey. So was I underseen probably. Um, and then when I got to Peoria and, in Binghamton, I actually made the team out of uh, training camp the first year that I went to Hartford's training camp, and they they picked up two guys, Mike Zook and Mike Crombine, on the waiver draft, and I got sent to Binghamton, and that's how I ended up playing there the whole year. When and part of it too was there weren't a heck of a lot of Americans. Like it was an old boys, a lot of. I mean, there was. I don't know if there was a full on bias, but scouting and everything it isn't what it is now i would i would say yes you are correct um the general manager in in hartford for me was one of those old-time guys in Emil francis and didn't have too many of the uh american guys in his thoughts yeah how i would put it you 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 were on the, you were out in colorado springs right in 1980 I went to Colorado Springs and that was a, an interesting one because 79, I, was, I should say. Yeah. Uh, no, in 83, in 83. Oh, in 83. So, okay. So they yes. 84. So, Olympics. Yeah. So I tried out and you know, ABC sports, why world of sports did a feature that I was going to be Arizioni because same thing. I went to college. Guy, I, well, I went to BU as a captain and I went to the tryouts and, uh, played I, I remember Lou Vero talking to me and saying I know you can score goals show us you can uh, play like a two-way defensive game just so I'm, I'm comfortable with you and we played four scrimmage games and I scored a shorthanded goal and then he cut me and he told me that I didn't score enough goals <laughs> and I was playing with I remember playing with Eddie Lee and Richie Costello and they were both uh, Boston kids that played at Providence and uh, Princeton and they were both right shots, and I was playing the left wing, and the puck never came across to my side the entire time. They both <laughs> made made that initial roster and then got cut. But if you go back and look at that roster, I think there was like 14 guys that didn't make that Olympic team that went on and played four to 500 games plus in the National the NHL, Hockey NHL, huh? including Tommy Curvers. Um, yeah. Uh, I can't remember who else was on. I'd have to go through. I got the picture here someplace, but 
I, I ran into Lou Vera years and years later, and he used to do it to all of us. He's like, man, did I make a mistake not picking you? And then he'd say to the PK. <laughs> to the next guy and the next guy. <laughs> we, we just used to laugh. So you you played for many years You uh, at the start of your pro career. What we would call you now sort of what we call – or we would back – now we call them sort of tweeners, guys who were playing back and forth a lot in the NHL – and the, uh, and the American League, or back, you know, depending on what league you're in. But eventually you established yourself as an NHL player. What was it for you that made, took you to the next level to become a full-time NHL guy? There's two things. You, you have to have a belief of the people that, that bring you up an opportunity, uh, a coach that believes in you. And, and that's part of the development process that we all go through. But my problem was... I would still look at guys like when I started in Hartford, I would say I'm playing against Gretzky. I'm playing against Lemieux. Oh my God. I can't believe it. Right. And I never would uh, be able to take that next step. And I ended up talking to a, a good friend of mine named Dr. Uh, Frank Lodato, who's a sports psychologist. He's worked forever. He actually worked with the Miami dolphins in 72 and wrote a book about it. You know, we were, we were 12 and zero and, whatever he goes through the whole thing but he talked to me about uh about mental preparation and and the deep breathing and the relaxation being yourself and I honestly believe I did it that summer that I finally took the next step and I remember I got called I got I was in New York and um I got I got put on waivers I got put on uh buyout waivers and uh Espo was gonna was gonna buy me out and it, so I put me on hundred dollar waivers. I got picked up by LA. So I figured, okay, I'm going to get a chance with LA. So they um, picked me up and I, I don't get a hold of Rogi until the next day. He's trying to, he was playing golf. Actually. I remember they had their, uh, <laughs> they had their golf tournament and this became normal. Um, so he says, you know, Hey Paul, I don't know you. I'm going to, you know, have you play in New Haven work? at that time was a split affiliate, the Rangers in LA. And the reason I got picked up is because Robbie Fatorik was the coach and told him he can play in the NHL. Right. So we start the season and I have 11 goals and five assists in five games, including the last, my last minor league game. I had five goals, a fight, a spear and an instigator. So I had four <laughs> goals. I had four goals after two and Robbie says to me I didn't even know it he goes hey Rogi is in the stands he goes, so show him that you can do something else so I was like okay so Manny Viveros was uh on the other team he was renting my house in Springfield and I I just happened to run into him and fought him and then I come out of the box and I score to make five goals is then Robbie sticks his head in my ear and he goes, I've never seen someone score six goals professionally. He says, I want, I'm normally I'd sit you go and he goes, go and do it. And I hit the post. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I had had success obviously in, in uh, the American league. I believe I can't get anybody to confirm it for me, but I think I'm the first, 50 goal scored it's American born in the American Hockey League and that was in the that was in the 50th uh, season of the American Hockey League sure. I, I asked 
several people over time being from Springfield, you know, is this true? And if you look it up, you can see it that I'm the first American, but it just doesn't want to get recognized for some reason. Well, I'll put it in, next year, this summer, when the, when the Jason Chamovich, who's in the vice president of communications for the AHL, when he puts together the, uh, the guide and record book, I'm going to make a note that he includes this in there, that you are the first American born player, especially, Hey, out of all the places, it's not like you're from Minnesota or something like that. Right. You're from the home of the AHL, Springfield. They should have you. They should have a freaking page dedicated there, maybe. Jack Butterfield lived on the next street from me. Oh, did he really? Wow. Yeah, uh, I, I'd like that. That's that's one thing that's always sat with me. And the re- and the reason is like Brett Hull scored fifty the next year. Did he really? So if Brett was. First, do you think they'd be boosting that? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, obviously, obviously. Uh, so you, you you're out in LA. You play your first year in LA, and then, like I referenced this before, probably the most significant trade in certainly in hockey, maybe all of sports ever happens. The Gretzky trade. Uh, talk about what how you found out about it your experience with like what, what what was that like to go through as a member of that team so i was skating getting ready for training camp when this all came down i remember because i had uh pj my oldest son with me we were down at stick time in uh in a rink outside of springfield and i'm doing down and backs and he's playing on the ice he's uh so that was 88. So PJ is three and he's just out there skating. And uh, I remember somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, Gretzky just got traded to LA. And I was like, I, I immediately, I shook my head. I said, that's not good. Uh, <laughs> I, oh, I just knew, you know, I had scored 20 goals in LA. Right. The year before. In those days, you knew you had to be in that, in the Edmonton type of click. And right. I, knew that there were going to be enormous changes and uh, you could just tell, you know, cause that's when Sorley came and then Krushelinski and uh, who else came and that it was just, it just, it turned over and um, I mean, it ended up being the best thing that could ever happen to me because then I went to Winnipeg and, you know, actually my career took off because of it, right. but, uh, right. but it was not a, it was not a, what I would consider a fun one. Um, you, I get, I knew I was being traded. I was in Detroit and I get a call and they say, you're getting traded. So LA was, it was Thanksgiving. So LA was leaving to go someplace and Winnipeg was coming in. So I just stayed in the hotel and Winnipeg played in Detroit that night and I end up going across the street and I meet Dan Maloney and Dan Maloney says to me, uh, I walk in and he says, uh, well, I got the lineup tonight. So, you know, go watch the game and we'll, we'll just see how things are. And uh, so I said, okay. And he says, I don't know why Mike Smith made this trade. I said, okay. Um, and they, and they had traded me for Jill Hamel, who Jill Hamel, they were going to send to the minors. And in those days I was still on a two-way contract. You so were? I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I got, Winnipeg or Moncton. And I've just told my wife, 
you're moving from LA at 85 degrees to minus 40 <laughs> to the coldest place in North America, practically. So I say to Dan, you don't know who I am. And he goes, no. I said, well, I played you eight times last year. He goes, yeah, you were on LA last year. I go, yeah. And you don't remember me? He says, no. I said, I had four goals, two assists and two were game winners against you. And he goes, wow, I didn't know that. Well, I'll, he goes, so I'll give you a chance. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so here I am. I, I, I end up having to get a chance and, uh, you know, survived, survived. He got, he got axed. Rick bonus comes in at the end of the year. And then Bob Murdoch comes in and Bob took a real liking to me. And fortunately with Brett Ashton and Paul McDermott, we had just a phenomenal line that played against everybody's top line and, and it helped my career go to another level. It's so funny to hear that because you would never hear a coach say that. You would never hear a GM say that, you know, what you said about Rogie, what you said about Dan Maloney, that it, the first time that happens, that, that person isn't employed much longer. Yeah. Nowadays. <laughs> well, Mike's, you know, it, it was kind of a quirky one. Cause uh, uh, John Ferguson got fired in, Winnipeg and I was Mike Smith's first trade and John Ferguson was anti um, like wearing a shield and okay. I was wearing a shield yeah. and I wore, I wore a shield because in my like third year I got kicked with a skate going down to block a shot and said to myself what am I doing like this is crazy I, protect yourself in some way so I wore it but all, all the guys that were saying it, that, that Fergie wouldn't have traded for me because I had a shield on, but Mike, oh, Mike, Mike did. Smith, yeah, I would. All huh? those like little things that you pick up later. That's amazing. I, you know, you mentioned moving to a, you, you got to tell your wife and you got a young kid that you're moving to LA or from LA to, to uh, Winnipeg. Well, two years later, not only do you got to tell her you got traded once, but you got to tell her you got traded twice. Tell us what that was like. So like there's so many different little reasonings for this. So in those days, uh, when you played in Canada, they had these things like you could defer part of your money if you were American um, so that you could get it when you retired. And I had a small, small thing. It was like $20,000 or something in Canadian funds. And the reason you did it is you wouldn't then get taxed like the Canadian rate at 52%. Right. So I get traded to Toronto, Toronto yeah. and I go to see the GM and it was Floyd Smith. And the players association is telling me and Dave Ellett not to take another check because they don't offer that service for guys. So I said, they're telling me not to take one. So he says to me, I can, I can solve this for you. I can trade you to the States. And in those days, if you had a Canadian valued contract and you moved to the States, it went to us funds. So in essence, it was like a 20% raise. Right. So my eyes lit up and I was like, I can Great. go back to the States. So he goes, yeah, I go home. I take, I'm take the kids uh, tobogganing across the street after practice. And I come back and my wife says, Hey, Floyd Smith called. I call him. He says, I traded you to Washington. So I was like, wow, Washington. I go, we got family there. This would be great. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself, 
thinking to myself, David Poyle. Now, David Poyle doesn't like my type of player. More importantly, Jack Button didn't like me as a player. So I, he loved the way that I worked. Another complicated thing. When I was in Binghamton, Washington and Hartford uh, split affiliates. Shared affiliations, yeah. I used to stay out and shoot after practice with Warren Stralo um, oh. against Mason and Sidorkowicz for like hours. I just loved to shoot. I, it was like, you know, what are you going to do? You're done. You want to just get better. Right. So I, I meet Jack Button one time as I'm walking off and he goes, he goes, you know what? I love you. Like you, all you do is work and work. You want to get better. Too bad you're, you're too small and you're not fast enough. You're not going to make it. <laughs> and I, I turned to Jack and I told him to blank himself. And said, <laughs> I'll show you. And much later on, I ran into Jack and he starts laughing. He goes, good for you. So that made me think that the David Poyle thing wasn't going to happen. And David Poyle calls me back and tells me I've traded you to Calgary. So that's <laughs> so how that you were, happened. so you were traded not two times, but three times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Freeway trade for Kenny Sabrin. For, for Admiral. <laughs> yeah. But Admiral went, great. But I went, I went with John Cordick to Washington and in all my time in Toronto, which was like three months, I never met John Cordick because he was suspended the whole time. <laughs> I just got traded with him to to Washington. Washington was, was yeah. who was the coach? Was Brophy the coach there? Who was in Toronto? No, uh, Tom Watt. Tom Watt was okay. And Tom Tom loved me. Tom wanted me to stay. Yeah, but it was it was Floyd getting the pressure from from the Maple Leafs that they couldn't open up this deferral thing. And, wow. and, and but to end up in Calgary, I mean, those, the, the, that lineup is just stacked with all, most of the guys that were around when they won the cup a couple of years before, that was a really good team. Theo Fleury had like 110 points or something like that. Uh, that was a pretty good yeah, place to end up. Yeah, that was yeah. the year, that was the year he scores in game six and does the, the flip. Yes. Like center ice. And, and I played with Joel Otto. It was Joel Otto, myself, and it was Mark Hunter. And then he got traded at the deadline. And I can't remember who, but the reason that they traded for me was because the year before, my line played against Messier, Anderson, and Curry uh-huh. in Winnipeg for two for two years. We played against them. So I ended up with Joel. They matched us against Messier's line. So in two years in a row, I lost in game seven to Edmonton in the first round. And the one in, in Calgary was the, the worst one because if you watch the replay, Essa Tikkanen takes a wrist shot from the blue from the blue line on his offside and it hits, I think it's it's Gary Souter. It hits Gary Souter in the toe of his skate. And it goes up about 40 feet in the air. Mike Vernon is 15 feet outside his net because he's so small, looking like, like where's it going to be? And it goes up and it lands in the crease and bounces in the net. And that's an overtime. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. We, wow. uh, 
we should we should move ahead and, and we we could do this all day but due to time constraints as they say we'll move ahead you eventually get into management in anaheim mm-hmm. but how did you end up in nashville then um an advancement of of run, so i was running the pros in in anaheim i was the only guy doing the pros i did 76 teams um and then david poyle was looking for somebody which he uh, initially said was assistant GM and it ended up being director of player personnel. So he asked uh, Jack Ferrara for permission to talk to me. And that's how I ended up in, in Nashville. And then you end up running the draft. And I'm, I was curious about this. What, cause you hit on, I mean, it, it's, it's always great. Well, you hit on a Hornquist, the last player in the draft, last player picked you Pecorino is an eighth round pick. And that story is, famous um what's more of a thrill a first rounder panning out like he's supposed to or this last pick in the draft or an eighth round pick panning out when the vast majority of people don't think that it's going to work out for them i think it's everyone like you don't have a uh, the the first round is probably the most uh nerve-wracking that you go through Uh, you got to get it right yeah, the suitor the suitor story is uh, that that's another one that uh, you have me on, and I'll I'll tell the story about the arguments that I had over taking Ryan Suter. Um, I mean, with with our old with our GM at the time, like I can't even describe how many blood curdling conversations we had over this. I mean, I I, what, I, it, it worked out that and that whole draft is Suter and Kevin Klein and Shea Weber it, and that might, Alex Stolzer and Richard, Richard Stahelik. <laughs> we took a defenseman. We took a Russian defenseman too, Mukachev, that we signed, and he was supposed to play for us that year, and he declined right before training camp. So I would have had five defensemen um, on my t- uh, on our draft from that. In fact, I'm I'm thinking of this and here I just showed you the ring anyway Aaron I showed you the ring I you know I got our Milwaukee Admirals ring but this is a this is what I I have on my desk as well so that was their first the first game I think it was their first game in the Boston Garden I went down and met uh Suter Weber Klein and Sulcer that's and awesome I had my picture taken at morning skate just standing there with them because I I thought I don't ever remember somebody drafting four four positional defensemen to play in your top four in one game. I, I was just going to say I don't uh, I don't have any research on this at all, but it's it's got to be the best defensive draft ever in the history of the NHL by one team. I mean, just just to get two, you're you're going to get two two Hall of Famers out of there. Kevin Klein, who probably played six or seven hundred games in the NHL. Alex Seltzer, who played 150 to 200, like just remarkable how you hit on those guys. They were, and you know, there's, you know, you know, the story about Weber, there was strategy why it took him with the fourth pick in the second round and everything. Um, people didn't know. Uh, they, they didn't watch him enough because he was playing the sixth defenseman in Kelowna. Yeah. So we just kind of strategized. And I strategized because Klein was such a good skater that I thought, he wouldn't make it much further than that. Took a Russian that was a, a scorer that 
never came over and didn't pan out him and Shafagul and yeah. in the second and third round. But, uh, I mean, that was the first draft that I ever ran and it was, we had some internal problems that, that happened. And, uh, David called me on December 22nd, which was my birthday and, uh, said, I want you to run the draft this year. And I said, David, I've never done amateurs before. All I've done is, uh, pros. Pros and I've gone and oversaw like the, our picks and just taken a look, but never had the final, final say, he said, well, we have to do this. And, you know, you're the obvious choice. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, I, I'll see you in July. Like this, is <laughs> right. and, and it, it was insane. I mean, I, I've never had to work like that before. Uh, I don't think I was home two days a month in those days. Uh, that, that draft. Cause you know, that was the one in Nashville itself. So right. It was insane. I can't even describe how, how crazy it was for six months. How, but I think about it because I remember the first time I met you was in Omaha in that old rink in Omaha. And, and I, I had said to you something along the lines of your assessment of talent. And I'm just curious, like going from pros to amateurs, how big of a change was that? Cause maybe it's more projection. I don't know. It is all projection, but it's what you see and you have to see, you have to feel and you have to see something. Um, Jack Ferrar is the one that always said to me, he says, make sure the guy has one special quality. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily at the end of the day, um, gospel or the rule, because to say the guy has to do something special, he's got to have something that's, that's, you know, elite, whether it's hockey sense or character or whatever. I always assess that at the top of the list for me, but he, he's got to do something. There's some guys that do everything really, really good and they become very good players for you. You know, an example of that is like, uh, is like, Colton. I was going to say Nick Spalling. I think of Nick Spalling yeah, when Nick you say Spalling, that. Colton Sissons, uh, Jan Kruk, guys like that, that do everything really well, but nothing elite elite, but they're really good hockey players. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to just go back to something you just mentioned that I have always said is a really remarkable thing that Nashville always did. And, and, and between you and David and Ray, I guess is the reason this happened is that in the 20 years I've been doing this, I can count on one hand, the number of jerks we've had on the team. And when we have a jerk on the team, I, I, I remember a specific player that uh, I won't mention his name here. Me too. It didn't last long. You it did, did it. not last long. And like you came in and you said, and you said to his counterpart, who was just sort of like, there was one guy who was sort of, he was not a good guy, but they had a, he was, he was bringing a couple of guys along with him, bringing them down. And you sat those guys down and we're like, listen, this is BS. You can't be doing this. You want to play pro hockey. You want to play in Nashville. You can't, you can't be acting like this. We're, we're professionals off the ice too. And guess what? That guy turned around and, uh, and you shipped the other, the, the main problem out. And it was really, it's really a, a testament to yourself and the Nashville organization, how we've had good people in Nashville. Not, and, and, and it also goes to show that you don't have to have, you can have good teams and good people. They're not mutually exclusive. Well, it, you know what? It starts with your with your scouting staff and the hiring of good people. Like, you know, you guys, uh, 
you go back with knowing Jeff Kelty from, you know, playing the one year or what have you. And um, like, he was my, I, I, my student um, immediately when he got hurt and he, he and I used to talk before he got hurt, when he was a player, I would ask him what he was going to do to get better. And, you know, had my list of what I was going to tell him and he would tell me. And so he had focus. He knew what he wanted to do to become a player. And unfortunately he had a career ending injury, but as soon as he had that, I offered him a scouting job. Um, immediately. And he was living in Boston. I had him going to games and things. And all it took was one conversation about he's leaving a game in Springfield. I remember. And I, I said to him, what'd you think of this guy and this guy and this guy? And he goes, bang, bang, bang. And I go, <laughs> I go, that, that's exactly what I think. So I ended up hiring him. I got people like Tommy Nolan, who is like as quality, quality a person. Um, he had Nick Beverly working with us, uh, you know, for years and years and years. And what I focused on was hiring people that, that had character so that they could recognize they character. see the character. Yeah. Like, you know, David and Ray, Ray was, Ray was down there all the time, but I don't think David's been in, in Milwaukee 10 times in 23 or four years. Right. right. Um, so it was, it's the, the guys like Ray and myself and Jeff that are, are there, Scotty Nickel, the guys that are there night in and night out that define and see everything happening that you have to react to. And then on top of it, it's hiring, as we talked about earlier, the right coaches, the ones that are going to give them the right direction to become National Hockey League players and, and show them moral values. That's right. That's such a huge part. These are babies that you're dealing with right. in a lot of ways. I mean, you guys see the life changes in them uh, day in and day out with trying to take them to do charitable events. And you've had some mature guys and you've had some very immature guys. And yeah. it, it, it's called life. So you got to manage it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, if you, you mentioned coaches and I, I know we're running out of time, Charlie, so I apologize if I'm oh, cutting, got, I, you know, we got a little bit, I, uh, I'm curious, this, the stability in the coaching ranks in Milwaukee is remarkable. I don't think any other American hockey league franchise has had this type of stability where a coach will stay for at least four years. Uh, the interesting one that's in that group is Kirk Muller. Yeah, I wanted to ask about Kirk as well. That was so a huge gift. He was he was a hot prospect, and obviously he yeah. wasn't here long. I mean, he was in the NHL very soon. But what was that like? Because that that took a lot of people by surprise. So, you know, a lot of people do interviews in different ways, and um, I'm not a I'm not a uh, check mark on a on a piece of paper type of guy. It's how we talk and we talk about how the game is and how we would handle situations. Kirk and I talked for, I remember I was in Vegas for, it's like some awards or whatever. And I'm walking around with a headset on, in, uh, on the strip in Vegas. And I talked to him for two hours, two of us <laughs> talked for two hours. And at, at the end of it, he goes, he goes, you and I click like, this is like, we, we think the same and, he goes, I want to come there. And I was really? like, perfect. I said, perfect. That, that's how we, how we determined it. 
And I called David and I said, well, we're going to hire Kirk Muller. He said, well, I want to talk to him. I said, okay, go ahead. Yeah, you right. I said, but he's the next guy. And he said, he's he's the guy. We and I, He and I just had this conversation. Um, we we really hit it off. And he goes, he's going to come? I said, yeah, he's going to come. So that that those are the type of things when you are having these conversations, you know if they fit or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then when he leaves, and I mean, you knew he probably was a short-timer anyway. Yeah. Him. It's, right. it's like you it's have true. to recruit LeBron James if you're a college, even though you know he's probably going to go pro. You have to do it. Um, but when he leaves, when he did, I mean, how how much surprise was that? Uh, he and I had talked about it. And when I saw what happened in Carolina, I knew he would be, you know, one of the guys who called me and we talked about if it was his time. And he said, you never know when you're going to have your opportunity. So I said, I don't have a problem with you going. I just said, I, I know you wanted to come here and get, you know, the experience of being, that has to be on the resume. Yeah. That was, that was the only issue. And then, and then he got there and, you know, similar to a couple of our situations, you get there and you, you open the box and you go, (laughs) Oh my God, is this really (laughs) what I have? Um, Like, like a first four-hour bus ride down to Peoria uh, to open the season. <laughs> uh, he used to call me, and he'd be like, "You don't do this, do you? You don't." Do this. <laughs> and I'm like, "Uh huh, uh huh." I said, "That's what I was trying to warn you about. There's different places that have different criteria at the time, and you know, in in his defense, I think he ran into some of that that wasn't as, as glamorous. Much. Yes, very yeah. good. Yeah." Yeah, but after her, you know, it's a, it's just one year that the Admirals have that has, you know, we have three different, go through basically three coaches in about a year. But after that, you hire Dean. Uh, do, you know, Herbie leaves to go to the University of Edmonton or University of Alberta. Uh, and did you know right away that you wanted to, you said that you always wanted to hire, that you always wanted to hire him. Did you have to interview other people first? Or did you know, like, this is my guy. He's I didn't been a, anybody. Did, did it? Did you have to convince him though? Because he was, uh, you know, he'd been in the NHL for six years, and he so, had survived somehow. He had survived with three different coaches, three different coaches, in including a coach that he fought three times in one period. I think that's an awesome right. story. <laughs> I know. Oh, what a nut job. <laughs> uh, he uh, he and I ran into each other several times in Washington, and uh, you know, I had known him obviously since he was 20 years old and I ran into him at the locker room a couple of times. And I told him once I said, Dean, you need head coaching experience. I said, why don't you come and coach for me in Milwaukee? The next time that I have an opening come, he's like, ah, you know, well with that last turnover and him not getting hired by George, even though he said, you know, I know you're ready. Uh, he and I had talked and as soon as he knew he wasn't getting that, he called me and he said, look, if something ever happens, you, you know, you can do this. And I remember I, I called him, I was down in Florida and I was driving up the East coast and he called me and said, you know, I'm not getting, uh, getting the job and whatever. I said, perfect. I need a coach. I said, okay, so I'll hire you. And like, I didn't interview him. It was, yeah. I knew you knew that this from guy was- all of our years of together and 
conversations and what he's all about and what he what he demands from players i said this is perfect and i just ended up hiring him what i think was so unique about dean and that we hadn't ever experienced in a coach before that is he was just he you control what you can control and don't worry about the other stuff right he wasn't concerned about what promotions the admirals were doing or anything like that if it didn't impact the game he didn't care and he brought that attitude to the players as well that like you've got to focus on yourself and you know and you got to be prepared it would in the past it, we would want to give a goalie an award before a game because the AHL tells us to do this and we'd have coaches fighting us you know Lane and Claude specifically they they liked to be in charge and they don't want I don't want my goalie two minutes before a game taking an award even though the guy doesn't have to say anything and Dean was like listen if my goalie can't get his head back in the game two minutes in, with you know for accepting an award for 10 seconds over there I don't want him playing and I just thought that was a a breath of fresh air and made my job so much easier. He's, he's just straightforward and you're not going to rattle him. I love the conversations when he wanted to scratch, like, you know, one of the prospects and he and I would be having these interesting discussions of that maybe got heated at times and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, I would tell him, you know what, if you think it's going to make a difference in this guy, for the future because you have to correct him uh, or redirect him, then I would allow him to do it. And that's the thing. You have to empower the guys that are, that have it on the tip of their fingers every day. That's, that's one actually, thing I, I oh, go ahead, Aaron. quick on that, not to, not to belabor that point, but I heard whether it was on the bus or whatever, I would just hear Dean side of these phone calls when, when they would get that. And I, I always respected that there was respect with you guys like that. Uh, like great, great deal of respect. You trusted each other very well and you were able to say what you needed to say and, and believe what you needed to believe. And, but, but at the end of the, you, you went back and you, it was another day after that. I loved that. Yeah, it, it did. It, when it was over, it was over. And that's the, that I actually, I, I probably learned that better from my wife than I did from <laughs> My wife being from, from 10 kids, like I used to, I used to watch them go at it. And then when it was over, it was done. Like, I mean, I mean, it's turned the page. Like we don't remember what happened and coming from 10 kids. I used to say to her, like, I got an older brother and a younger brother. And if I punch one of them in the nose, like we're not forgetting about it. (laughs) It's going to, it's going to appear at three o'clock in the morning with, somebody jumping on the other one in bed and beating them up. Right. <laughs> He's like, no, it doesn't happen that way. But you, and you had to have that really, you had that type of relationship though, with all of our coaches. Yeah, exactly. I remember when Lane, his exit press conference, he just starts thanking people. And he says, yeah. And I got to, I, I obviously got to start with, uh, with Paul Fenton, who my wife calls, uh, who, who my wife, I think he said, he said something to the effect of my wife calls that, his, his real wife, because they talk yeah. on the phone much more than we ever do. And I think you've said the same thing, right? Your yeah. wife said the same thing, Paul. It's, it was, it was so much fun dealing with Lane and uh, to, to give you guys one more story on the Lane thing. So you guys are on the road coming back from, uh, I want to say it's like Grand Rapids and, and so it's on, has to be on Eastern. No, you guys are out West. And he calls me 
and he is ranting. And I remember it's the first year that I moved to Nashville and I'm, I'm laying in bed and it's like one o'clock in the morning and he calls me, you know, my wife goes like, who's that? I go, that's not, oh, it's Lane. I go, they'd lost and he's, he's going to be ranting. So I, I take the phone call and I put the phone on my pillow in my ear and I'm listening to him and I fall asleep <laughs> and he, all of a sudden I can hear, you know, how long, it, I think it's gone like 10, 12 minutes. And all of a sudden I hear, Hey, are you there? Are you there, Paulie? And I go, I'm here. I'm here. I'm listening to you rant. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I said, you know what? You should, you should just take a downer and go, you know, ride the bus out, watch the stuff and call me in the morning. He goes, all right, all right. I'm going to do, I hang up. No one goes, you fell asleep. I go, yeah. He goes, you never <laughs> tell him? I go, no. no. Way. <laughs> I waited. I waited like three months. And then I told him, and you know him, he goes, hey, I'm in front of him. He goes, I knew you fell. I knew you were listening to me. Oh, my so God. Good. It was funny. Ooh. Every every time we wrap these up, Paul, uh, Charlie, do you have anything else? No, no, that's awesome. Every, every time we wrap these up, uh, Paul, we like to ask our guests when they think of Milwaukee, what do they think of? Uh, just, just the hominess that you've treated all of our players, staff, management. Uh, you come in there, it is, it's easy. It's easy to go in there. Um, I see other places that are very stiff and aren't as, um, just embracing, you know, it's, and that, and that starts with, you know, Harrison, John, and, you know, everybody that I, that I had been there with for years and, and years and years, um, the, the staff is, is always so cordial to everybody and the players that leave there appreciate what it's like to be treated first class by people. And, and that, that's not the Nashville organization. That's you guys. That's, that's people being people. And you guys are, nothing but classy you treat these kids great because that's what they are and you teach them how to be good functioning adults not only in the hockey world but in in real life and that's the nicest thing you guys are all it was always a pleasure to come there i it was never it was never a problem for me to have to go there and uh and not enjoy myself and enjoy the atmosphere that we had there so you guys are all right at the top of my list. Well, same here. Uh, you Absolutely. you want to the best to your family, stay well, hit them straight uh, and hit them 350 yards if you can. And <laughs> That's twice. I was just going to say, is that two shots? <laughs> yeah. I'm not Dean. <laughs> oh, although you gave me, we, we were playing golf together. Sorry, you're going to wrap this up, but I'll tell you one thing. You told me, uh, I gave me a great golf tip, uh, a long time ago, and I think your dad told you this. When you, if you, if you have a longer putt, take the flag and lay it down next to the hole. You know how tall the flag is, and that'll give you some perspective on how far the putt is. That's an that's an Eddie Shore trick. Oh, Eddie Shore, Jesus! That, that. So Eddie Shore used to take the pin out and lay it down facing the hole, so that he could get a perspective as to how it was going to break. Yeah, that was an Eddie Shore trick that a friend of mine who's a golf pro from Springfield who taught Shore, Shore taught him that. 
That's, That's awesome. So good. Yeah, that is good. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. All the best. Anytime, you guys. It's a pleasure. I, I'm glad we got to catch up. Absolutely. It's been great. It's been great. That's. Uh, I hope your families are good. Stay safe. Yes, thank you. And thanks for listening to this Milwaukee Admirals podcast.